How's it going today? Welcome to episode number 12 of the Travel and Adventure Photography School podcast. I'm your host, Robert Massey. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I am stoked to launch into another series right now where we are going to talk all about the fundamentals of photography. Now, a lot of this will be refreshers for people who already shoot outside of automatic mode. But there are actually some really interesting things that I relearned again while I was doing some research for this article just to make sure I had all my information up to date. If you've got some time, even if you know how to shoot outside of automatic mode, I think this episode will be great for you. If you don't know how to shoot outside of automatic mode, this episode is made for you. And so is the next one and the one after that. As we are going to talk about everything from the exposure triangle to getting more stable images and less shaky images to what lenses are like and how you use them and what different ones are meant for. All sorts of good stuff. We're going to go over all of the fundamentals of photography over the next few weeks here. For today, we're going to start with one of the most basic things that I believe every photographer needs to know inside, outside, and backwards. And that's the exposure triangle. The exposure triangle is basically three camera settings that are critical to how your camera records the scene in front of you. It is the three most basic elements of how most cameras work to get what you want. So you need to be able to understand each one of these elements individually and then how each one of these elements works alongside the other two to help your camera capture a scene. Now, there are a ton of factors that go into a good scene in front of you, like good light, composition, posing, all that kind of wonderful stuff. The exposure triangle is a way to think about how your camera is recording that scene and how you want it to capture it. So the three elements we're going to talk about today are your ISO, your shutter speed, and your aperture. Now, sometimes having visuals to remind yourself of what the exposure triangle is like will really help with using this in the future. So we have created a special freebie that is up on the website. You can find it as part of this week's show notes. It is done in a format for you to take around easily with you on your phone or to tuck away in your pocket, but it's a little guide that will show you all about aperture, ISO, and your shutter speed to help you in the field when you are out shooting. All right, let's get right into it with your shutter speed as side one of our triangle. Now, this is the most critical aspect of the triangle, in my opinion, to understand how it affects your image because your shutter speed will determine if your subject is blurry or not. It'll determine camera shake. It'll determine all sorts of different factors. And you can't recover an image in post if it's shaky. There's nothing you can do about that. So get to know your shutter speed really, really well. And that'll save you so much hassle and so much heartbreak when you look back and go, but why did that turn out with so much blur? Shutter speed will help you deal with that issue. Shutter speed is a measure of how long the shutter on your camera stays open for. This controls how long light is hitting your sensor and thus is a major factor in your image's exposure. Basically, when your shutter is open, your camera is recording time. So the faster the shutter speed means the less time the shutter is open for, meaning less light will hit your sensor, resulting in a lower exposure. The slower the shutter speed means the more time the shutter is open for, meaning more light will hit your sensor and thus results in a higher exposure. So fast shutter speed means less light. Slow shutter speed means more light. A good way to think about this is with your eyes. 
try closing your eyes, then opening them for a second and closing them again. The time your eyes were open with light hitting your retinas is like when your shutter is open. And when you've closed your eyelids, that's like when your shutter is closed. Pretty straightforward, right? Fast shutter speed, fast shutter, slow shutter speed, slow shutter. Fast, less light, slow, more light. But how does that look when you look at your camera? And this is where it can get a little bit tricky. On most cameras, shutter speed is represented in seconds or in fractions of a second by a one diagonal slash over fraction. So like it'll be a one and a little slash beside it. So when I say I shot something at 500, that actually means I shot that image at one 500th of a second. But most cameras represent faster shutter speeds in whole numbers. So you won't see the actual fraction on your camera typically. You will just see the whole number, like 500 or 1000, whatever shutter speed you're shooting at, you won't see the one over fraction. So if you're going to be shooting at slower shutter speeds, such as a second or more, you will see the number followed by double quotation marks. So if it's one second, you'll see a double quotation mark up to the right-hand side of it. That represents one second. If you go up to two seconds, 2.5 seconds, it'll have a 2.5 with little double quotation marks beside it. So that's showing the actual seconds the shutter will be open for rather than the fractions of a second you get when you shoot on higher shutter speeds. Shutter speed isn't just critical for your exposure, it's also critical for the way your camera controls movement. The longer your shutter is open, the more motion can be recorded by your camera. So basically what that means is faster shutter speeds equal more frozen action. Slower shutter speeds means there is far more motion and movement going through your photos. Now, deciding what shutter speed you're going to use matters entirely on the subject that you're trying to shoot. If you want to freeze action, freeze motion, think something like sports photography or high action photography, you're going to want a really high shutter speed. I frequently shot hockey at a 500th or a thousandth of a second, and there was still a little bit of blur in those players. So they move pretty fast. What you're really looking to do is have your shutter open and close before your subject moves, or at least before your subject moves so much that the human eye can really see it happening. Now, if you are wanting to capture some of that silky smooth water that you see people have in their landscape photos, or if you're wanting to totally get rid of tourists in front of a tourist destination, you can blur them right out by using a slower shutter speed because then the people will move through your frame and they won't typically be in one spot long enough to be recorded and the water will just continuously flow through and you'll see all this beautiful motion happening in the water. So basically, to freeze action, high shutter speeds, to get some motion going through your photos, slow shutter speeds. Now we do have some problems with slow shutter speeds and it's in the stability of your camera and in the shake you can introduce. There are points where your shutter speed will be so slow that you cannot handhold the camera. The general rule for this is that your shutter speed must match the focal length you are shooting at and it must not go below 1 30th of a second to not have you cause too much shake in the camera with your own body movements and the little bit of subtle movement that we have all the time in our bodies. And that will blur your image, which has nothing to do with the subject moving or anything like that. It has to do with the camera's motion itself. So there are a number of ways you can stabilize your camera, including tripods and some techniques for handholding that we will go into in next week's episode, because otherwise this entire episode will just be on shutter speed. 
And I would like to talk a little bit more about Aperture and ESO to really have you understand the exposure triangle. So tune in next week if you're looking for ways to help stabilize your camera and get rid of a bunch of that camera shake. For now, here's kind of the basics. Faster shutter speed means bigger numbers on the camera display. They have less light because the shutter is open for less time, and this also allows them to freeze action. Slow shutter speeds means smaller numbers on the camera display most of the time. They have more light coming in because the shutter is open for more time, and this allows them to blur motion. All right, now we are moving on to part two, side two of our triangle, the aperture. Now, you might also hear people refer to aperture as f-stop or f-numbers, such as, like, I might say, I shot something at f2.8 or f4 or f5.6. That's representing the aperture. You'll also see that number on lenses. When you're looking to buy one, you'll see something like f2.8, f4, or you'll see like f3.5 to 6.3 on some lenses. So that's a variable aperture. It's just a representation of how wide the aperture can get. So aperture really means how wide open or how closed down the iris of your lens can be. So a wider aperture or lower f-stop number means more light will be let in by the lens, simply because the opening is larger. A narrow aperture or higher f number allows less light to reach the sensor because it is a narrower opening. So think of this like your pupil. When you are in bright daylight, your pupil is very small and tight because there is lots of light around you. When it gets dark, your pupil gets bigger because there is less light and your pupil needs to allow more light in. If you've ever had your eyes dilated, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. So bigger opening, more light, lower number, smaller opening, less light, bigger number. So on your camera's display, your aperture will be represented by a number with a decimal point in it. And depending on the lens can go anywhere from 0.95, I'm sure there's lower ones out there as well, to 29 or even higher. Typically though, you're going to see values like 2.8, 3.5, 4.0, 5.6, numbers like that. You're not typically going to get down into that 0.95 or up into the 22, 24, 29 kind of range. Now this can be where it gets a little confusing for some people. So listen closely. A wide aperture is represented by a small f number. So the bigger the opening on the lens's iris, the smaller the number you will see on your camera's display. A narrow aperture is represented by a large f number. So the smaller the opening on the lens, the bigger the number you will see on your camera's display. Simple, right? Got it? Wide aperture, small f number. Narrow aperture, large f number. Now, a byproduct of the way this works and the way the light reaches your sensor is the focusing of your depth of field. So your aperture not only helps to control the light hitting your sensor, but it also controls the depth of field in your image. Now narrow apertures, higher F numbers, give a greater depth of field, allowing more of a scene to be in focus. Think landscapes and cityscapes when you see everything super, super sharp. Wider apertures, lower F numbers, create a narrower depth of field, which can help isolate a subject. This is most commonly used in portraiture, when you see the background all nicely blurred out, that's when people really love to use a shallow depth of field. 
So if you start thinking about how this is going to affect your photography, if you're doing a lot of landscape photography, you're going to want to be up into the narrower aperture range, which would mean larger f-stop numbers. And if you're wanting to do a lot of portraiture and a lot of isolating subjects, you're going to want less of a depth of field. So you're going to want a wider aperture and you're going to want to have lower f numbers. Now, a quick note here on how your aperture can affect the sharpness in your image. So we typically are aiming to have images that are fairly sharp in the spot that we are focusing on. So if you're doing portraiture at really wide apertures, so, you know, 1.4, 2.0 kind of range, you need to be really certain about where your focus point is going to be. That's because the depth of field at those kind of numbers is really slim. That means that you can really easily miss what you were trying to focus on and that bit of your subject will be out of focus. On the other end of the spectrum with landscape photography or cityscape photography, when you're using those really narrow apertures, you might be tempted to go all the way up into the F22 kind of range. That's not going to be your best bet either. Really massive f-stop numbers like f22 can give you a greater depth of field. But because of the way that our lenses work, you're actually not going to have as sharp an image. So technically you might have a greater depth of field, but your image will actually look less sharp by going up into those numbers. This is basically a process called artifacting where distortions and other things like that can start to become a problem with your image's overall sharpness. But what do you do then if you want a really great depth of field, but you can't go up really high into those numbers? Well, every lens has what's known as a sweet spot. And this is the spot where the lens is technically at its sharpest. In most lenses, that number will fall somewhere between f5.6 and f11. And it all has to do with your base aperture, the widest that your lens can get to. There's a lot of factors that go into play to create a sharp landscape photo. We'll talk a lot about that on an upcoming episode of The Fundamentals of Photography, where we are going to talk all about lenses. And in that episode, we will give you a formula for how to find your lens's sharpest aperture value and some ideas how to take sharper landscape photos. So be on the lookout for that episode. Until then, I want to keep going on with the rest of our exposure triangle. Because just like shutter speed, we could do an entire episode on the aperture. But I think it's important for you to hear all three of these pieces together to start understanding how they work together as a unit. All right, so to wrap up our aperture, wide aperture equals shallow depth of field and more light represented by small f numbers. Narrower aperture equals bigger depth of field and less light, represented by large f-stop numbers. And finally, the third part of our triangle, ISO, or ISO. This comes from the days of film, where we had way less control over the ISO than we do today. At that time, it was the sensitivity of the film that you used. Today, we view it as the sensitivity of your sensor to light. Although technically we're not controlling the sensitivity, we're controlling a post-image gain applied to the signal. But to make things easy on you, think of this as sensitivity. ESO is mostly represented by numbers in the hundreds, thousands, and tens of thousands. Although 
some cameras go below 100, and there are many now that go into the hundreds of thousands. You will see a number such as 100, 200, 400 on your camera's display. The higher the ISO number, the less light you need to take an image. To think of it in terms of sensitivity, the higher the ISO number, the more sensitive your sensor is to light. But there is a trade-off. The more you increase your ISO, the less detail and the more noise or grain your image will have. This is how really grainy photos are produced. So why would you ever use a high ISO? There are many instances where you will have maxed out your aperture and have the slowest shutter speed you can to still freeze motion. Remember, we don't want to go so slow that people are blurry in it or that you're causing camera shake yourself because that makes the image unusable. But you still don't have enough light after you've adjusted those other two settings. This is when you increase your ISO. Most photographers, and I'm one of them, would happily have a more grainy image with a well-defined subject rather than a less grainy image with a blurred subject. Let's give you an example of times when you might need to raise your ESO or times where you're going to keep it low. So on a really sunny day outside and you're taking photos in bright sunlight, middle of the day, you're definitely not going to need to raise your ESO up unless you're trying to get into insanely high shutter speeds and insanely high f-stop values. If you are inside, say in a big old church, or even in your house, you're typically going to need to bump up your ISO to help counteract the lack of light that is coming in. So in really low light situations is when your ISO is typically going to have to start creeping up. And in really bright situations, you won't need to have your ISO up very high. So to wrap it up, ISO can be seen as sensitivity to light. This isn't scientifically right. But for teaching purposes and for getting going with understanding what ESO means, it helps to think of it this way. The lower the ESO, the less light sensitive your sensor is and the less grain or noise you're going to introduce into there. The higher your ESO you go, the less light you can work in and the more sensitive your sensor is to light. But this introduces more grain to the image. So this is your exposure triangle. Now what you need to do is figure out how to balance each one of these elements to create the photo that you want. But where do you start? So here's a little thing that you can do to begin to understand how shutter speed, aperture, and ISO all correlate to one another to help create the exposure triangle. This will involve a couple of steps. Back to side one of our triangle, your shutter speed. Try finding your dog, something that's moving in your house, something that's moving just outside your window, and take a few different photos of it at different shutter speeds. So start at 130th, then move up to say 1 100th, 250, 500, and see how that changes the stillness of that subject that is moving. For your aperture, try setting up a few different objects on a table, like five or six different objects, and then crouching down in front of it and focusing on one object and then change your f-stop number. So start at the widest aperture that you can possibly get, and then narrow it in, and you will see how that depth of field changes through those objects that are sitting on that table. Now for your ESO, just try cranking it up and seeing what that does to the picture. What you'll likely start noticing is little green and purple pixels showing up throughout your image, and that's when the noise is starting to be applied. Throughout all of this experimenting, you're going to have to find a way to balance all three of these values. 
So if you increase one number, you're going to have to decrease another. That's to keep your exposure proper. If you just keep cranking up a number, it's going to get really underexposed. Or if you just keep making your camera go wide open, it's going to get really overexposed. So you're going to have to figure out and start understanding how when you change one of these values, you need to change another one of them to be able to balance your exposure properly and get the image you are really looking for. So embrace your shutter speed and your ISO and your aperture. Start to understand them and learn about them and play around with them. This is how you will start to be able to create amazing photos. Auto does an okay job, but you're allowing that camera to dictate your photos. Yes, you can control the composition, but you're not controlling much else. Don't let a piece of technology dictate your artistic vision. Decide for yourself how you want that image to look. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me here today, everybody. Really love teaching and talking about photography. So we're going to keep going on these fundamentals of photography for the next little while to really get as many people up to speed as we possibly can on what it takes to create good photos. If you're enjoying this, if you found this helpful, anything like that, if you can, if you're listening to this on a space that allows it, please drop us a review. Subscribe so you get updates every single week when we post new episodes every Monday. And if you want, send us a message, get a hold of us. You can find us online at travelandadventurephotographyschool.com. While you're there, you can find the show notes for this episode and all past episodes. You can use the contact form to send us a message and let us know what you think we should be talking about in the near future. Or if you're on social, you can get a hold of us on Facebook, Travel and Adventure Photography School. And on Instagram, you can find us at Travel Adventure Photo School. And if you're posting photos on Instagram that have been inspired by what we're talking about here today, use the hashtag TAPS community, T-A-P-S community. That will let us see the images that you're posting. And we'd love to interact with you, see what you're doing, chat about it. It'd be fantastic to be a part of your work and to see what you're up to. Next week, we're going to talk about stabilizing your camera and some little tips and tricks you can do for hand-holding to get more stable images. And then we're going to talk about stabilizers themselves, like tripods and monopods, and basically how they work and why you should be thinking about using them and carrying one with you when you travel, even though they're kind of big and heavy. Thank you so much for joining me here today, everybody. Let's adventure soon. <laughs>